praise. Let's give him praise. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we're here today just to be present with you. All the stuff going on outside and all the stuff going on in our lives, what might happen in the future, I just pray that at least in this moment that we can suspend all those things or lay those things down before you and just be present with you because we know that you're a God who speaks. You're a God who is active. You're not absent. You are present. And we want to tune our ears to hear your voice and respond. And Jesus, as we sang this song, I know there may be some people in here who, man, you to- they totally feel this. Some people who don't feel it at all, who are struggling to see your goodness. But Lord, I pray that you, as Psalm 40 talks about, as they cry out to you, that you, God, will lift them out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, that you will set their feet on a rock and give them a firm place to stand. God, may you put a new song in their mouth, a hymn of praise to you, our God, because we know that it is through the praise of your people that many will see and fear you, God, and put their trust in you above all else. And it is, Lord, often through the stories of struggle and how you have met people in those, the God that encouraged my faith the most. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage, build up, breathe life into every person in this room and all those watching online. That you, we know you're present with us, so may we be present to you. Lord, I feel a a burden this morning to, to pray for those struggling with mental illness right now. I think there are many who know exactly what it's like to to patiently wait for you and cry out for you and feel as if they are in the mud and the mire, the slimy pit, unsure where you are. God, I pray that in the midst midst of their struggle, whether it's depression, whether it's a diagnosis, or whether it's just sometimes they just feel like their minds can't slow down and so scattered, Lord, I pray for peace and calm. I pray for a new song to be placed on their hearts. And God, that as we sing to you, that your spirit would come alive in us. And that it would be your spirit who's worshiping through us back to you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you never leave us alone. Now open our hearts and minds to receive everything that you have for us. In your mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. He's good, isn't he? Man, he's good. You guys, you may have a seat. You may have a seat. And man, it is great to see you guys this morning. I see so many faces in here that I'm like, man, I want to talk to you and you and you and you. Like, I, I just, we, we love you guys. And I, I hope you know that. And we are thrilled um, that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Um, and we pray that God will continue to open our hearts and minds. My goodness, there's so many of you. Like, wow. Uh, that I, I'm sorry, I keep seeing faces. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, thank you, JJ. Um, but hey, we're going to dive right in. Uh, we're in week three, actually, of a sermon series we started um, called uh, Filled with God, the Gift of the Holy Spirit. And it is a, eight, a seven to eight week series on, well, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and, I, and I hope that it has encouraged you. Is that true thus far? At least challenged you, maybe. I mean, it certainly has done those things for me. And um, 
And we were going to continue to dive in. Uh, but just a, a bit of a reminder, because we know that we as a church, and we all come together from different backgrounds and assumptions about the Holy Spirit, we started in week one asking, well, who is the Holy Spirit? And we saw in answer to that, the Holy Spirit is not some force. Right? He's actually the third person of our triune God. He has, he has a will, an intellect, emotion. And he's not a genie that we get to control, but that he's God. He's giver of life. He's worthy of worship. And then last week we built on that. And we looked at the fact that Jesus calls the Spirit of God the Spirit of truth. And he says that we can hear his voice. God is not distant, inactive, disconnected. But he is involved dynamically in our world and wants to speak to us. And so we gave some practical steps of how we can learn to discern the voice of his Spirit. And so building off of those, uh, we're going to step here into week three. But before I do that, I just want to let you guys know, um, right out in this foyer, if you, t- if you go out those double doors and take a hard left, there's a table that has a box. Um, and we, if you have any questions as we go through these series, questions about the Holy Spirit, it could be in response to a sermon, it could be in response to something we haven't even said yet, we would love to hear what those questions are. I'd love to know what you're wondering, right? And if you have some that you've been asking, um, just take one of those pieces of paper that's back there, write your question down. Uh, you don't have to put your name on it. Um, fold it up, put it in the box. We would love to just get some feedback. I can't promise that we can answer every question, um, but we're, we're going to see if we can find at least some creative ways to try to get at some of the questions we may not have time to in this series, because we really like questions here, uh, and we want to know what it is that you are thinking as we go through it. Um, so, do that. Also, if you're watching online, just shoot an email with your question to info at trinitynr.org. Uh, we would love to field your question that way. But here we go. You guys ready? Week two, we talked about the spirit of life. I'm sorry, week one, we talked about the spirit of life. Week two, we talked about the spirit of truth who speaks. Week three, we're talking about the spirit who transforms us. The spirit who changes us. And as we get into this... Um, one time within this last year, I had a conversation with a guy, unexpected conversation, with a guy who was really exploring faith in God. Never met him before, but as I got to know him more, uh, he let me know that both of his parents were, were, were committed atheists, and that he'd never been to a church in his life. And so I asked him, just a curiosity, I said, well, if, if you didn't grow up with any church or any religion, why are you interested in faith or God or religion now? He said, well, I, j- I just want to be a good person. I said, okay, well, you mind if I probe a little bit more here? Yeah, sure, okay. Um, what makes you think you're not? He said, well... He says, I don't think I'm a bad person. He says, I think, I think I'm still a good person. He says, but I just, I just notice that there are certain things in me and certain ways that I treat other people, and I just wish I was different. I just I want to change. Okay. All right, so um, what do you have faith in? What do you trust, or who do you trust, can actually change you? Right? I mean, like, that's the next question. Well, what, what are you looking to to change you. And he paused. And his answer surprised me a bit. He said, well, myself. He says, I, I trust in myself. You know, that, that, that if I look to myself, that, then I will find the answers for how I can change. 
And after that, you know, I did have a chance in time to talk to him about Jesus, uh, to share the gospel of Jesus. And I realized my role in his life, at least that day, was just to plant some seeds, right? You know, like that's an agricultural metaphor we often use. Um, but that question, man, that conversation, I've been thinking about it ever since. I really appreciated his raw honesty. But that led me to a realization that every human being, church or not, religious or not, every human being, we all have some vision of who we should be, and we all must reckon with the reality of who we are. Right? They're all, for every single one of us, we have some vision. He had this vision that he was supposed to be a good person, but he was wrestling with what he also saw within himself and trying to figure out why that gap was there. We all have a vision for what we should be, but also wrestling with attention of who we are. But that leads to the next question. We all try to explain that gap somehow. What is the problem? Why aren't we living up to the vision that we want for our lives? The guy I was talking to wasn't sure. He wasn't sure. Maybe, maybe God could help out you know, with this. But then what's the solution? If we reckon with a problem, like what's actually going to get me from where I am to where I want to be? What will help me bridge this gap? What's broken that needs repaired, however you want to put it? For him, his assumption was, well, he would find that solution in himself, in his heart. Which is a common assumption for many people in our secular post-Christian society. Now, when I use the word secular, that just basically means a, a belief that I don't need God, right? A life without God, right? It is the absence of God. It's, it's just a belief in the material world around me, okay? But that secular assumption, which we have many people, a lot of people go to church still think that, well, I'll have faith in myself. Now, is that a worthy assumption? And if we look at that, how do we pair that up? Compare that with what God said in his word, what the vision Jesus gives us. Right? What is God's vision? What is, how does God explain the problem between where we are and where his vision is for our lives? And what is his solution? And so that's what we're going at this morning. And especially looking at why is the Holy Spirit vital to that answer? So we're going to dive right into John chapter 1, verse 29 to 34. We're going to be, look at several different places today, but we're just going to start here. John chapter 1. And if you want to grab one of those blue Pubeck Bibles in front of you, we're on page 860. 860. John chapter 1, starting at verse 29. And if you got it, say got it. Okay, I'll ask again. If you got it, say got it. If you're not looking at this, you are looking at the screen, so you do got it too. So if you got it, say got it. All right, there we go. On the same page. John 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surprised me because he was before me. Surpassed me, sorry. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. 
Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now in this, we're going to see in a second how we see God's vision, his expression of the problem, and his solution all in that passage. But before we do that, can you guys pray with me and just say, God, open my heart, open my mind, have your way in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. So can we change? If so, how? You know, while I recognize that there are many in our society who believe that we can't change, who we are is just who we are, there's nothing we can do about it, what does Jesus say? And what is the vital role of the Holy Spirit in that? But before I get to that even, for those in our secular society who believe that we can change, well, how is that possible? How would most people in our, I guess, predominantly post-Christian secular society answer that question? What is the most common understanding of the vision for our lives, the problem is why we're not there, and the solution for how to get there? In other words, what's the secular gospel? And to try to put it as plain as I can, the secular vision of change is that we can become the best version of ourselves, that's the vision, when we cast off all external restraints, the problem, and follow our hearts, the solution. The secular vision of change that we become the best version of ourselves when we cast off all external restraints and follow our hearts. Now first, before I get into this, please forgive me uh, for making some generalizations here. Okay, because I know that not everybody around you and your neighbors feel the same way. The only way to really get to notice someone and how they think and feel is to, well, get to know them, right? I actually start up a conversation with them. But what I do want us to help us see is because we live, our unique area here in, in the Boston, the greater Boston area, is, is very much saturated with the secular way of thinking. And I just want to help us understand generally what that is, especially for those who do not believe they need God in their lives. And then by doing so, help us to then see the stark difference between what we call the secular gospel here and then the, the, the spirit-filled Jesus vision that he gives us. So first, according to the secular story, the vision or goal for our lives is that we become the best version of ourselves that we can be while we're alive. You may define that in a bunch of different ways. Right, whatever that looks like may look different to everybody, but everybody has this vision of like, well, I should be here, right? That would be the best version of myself. So what's keeping us back from that? Let's say, well, the problem is that there are external influences and pressures and restraints that limit my freedom to be me. The problem is not here with me. The problem is out there. It's with the government. It's with my church, it's with my parents, it's with my teachers, it's with others who, who are forcing me to be something I'm not meant to be. 
Okay, well, what's the solution then? How will I change? How will I rise above all of that? Listen to your heart's dreams and desires and boldly cast off any outside restraints that are holding you back. See, what I need us to understand is the foundation of the belief, the assumption at its core, is that we at our heart level are good. And this is really important to understand. Because if my heart is good, then I can follow my heart's dreams and desires, aka listen to my heart, and that will help me discover and fulfill my vision for my best me. To put it another way, they see us in this world like a garden, right? We live in a world, the soil of the garden is good, rich, but the outside environment is the problem. Bad weather, smog, pollution, weeds, right? Like, like that's spiritually speaking, or like that, that's our situation and why I can't rise above it. But if I'm going to rise above it, I have to have faith. And my desires and my dreams, and they will lead me to freedom. You guys tracking with me so far? So, so religion and, and other outside standards, man, like, they can be helpful. They can consult us on how, but our true Bible is our hearts and our desires. So you want to know what your life is? Well, do good. Achieve your goals and do what makes you happy. And if you keep doing that over time, it'll lead you to becoming your true self and freedom. But before we assume that this is just a next or younger generation thing, oh no, every generation in America has had their own expression of this. Imagine all the people living for today. Ready, ready, ready. Uh-huh. Right? What is that? John Lennon's vision of a world that just followed its heart. Right? So before we assume it's just this generation and we choose to look down on somebody else, let's stop and check our own hearts, shall we? But see, the thing is, when our hearts become the nucleus of our lives, when they become the thing that we're seeking most above all else, the question then is, well, can that really lead us to what it promises? Now, granted, I think the secular vision is right on one thing, at least. Right? I think it's right that there are many external institutions authorities, standards that are harmful and deformative to our personhood. And as Christians, we can agree with that, right? Because we know this world is a broken place. And there are plenty of things outside of us that are are actually deformative and harmful to us. But is the answer to that problem to just place all of our faith in what we discern is right and good on our own? Is it really just to listen to our desires? I mean, I think sometimes our hearts might get it right, but will it really get it right in the end? For one, if we're living a life where we're promoting or seeking our interests above everything else, 
doesn't that just feed a consumeristic mindset in our culture? To where, like, if, if I'm seeking my desires, I don't know about you, ha- have your desires ever been completely satisfied? <laughs> or do you end up just wanting more and more and more with the promise that eventually one day you will be satisfied? Well, has that day ever come? For two, if we see ourselves treating somebody else in a way that we know we should not, who are we, who we going to go to to blame for that if we can't look at our hearts? If we're going to assume that our hearts are good, then we're going to become a very finger-pointy generation of people. But for three, and this is the biggest one to me, if I live from my desires first, what does that do to my relationships? I mean, think about it. If I live for myself, like, am I going to then live for the best of others when it costs me? Or am I going to consistently build relationships as long as they work for the best of me? Probably, probably, probably the latter, right? That we're going to ultimately seek what's best for ourselves. And we look around in our society and we see there's a lot of fall in, fall out of love and relationships. And, and we watch as we see the breakdown of communities and, and families. We've been seeing that happen for a while now. Which is starting to be the fulfillment of this secular idea. And it's any wonder that we've started to substitute technology for the depth in relationship. And that there's this rampant epidemic of loneliness and isolation even before COVID started. So my question is, if we trust our hearts to free us, have our hearts led us well? Or could the problem not just be external, but also internal? And so let me ask again, can we change? And if so, how? And what is it that Jesus says and lays out to us? And how does that compare with what I just laid out? Jesus' vision of change is that we can become our true selves that God intended when we believe that he has cast off our sin and we follow his spirit. I'll unpack that one at a time. First, we just saw the secular vision of, well, what is God's vision for who we are meant to be? See, God's vision is that our hearts would become like his and our lives would become like him. To Israel, he told them, a people formed for himself from the beginning. He says, you are to be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. What is holy? Holy means pure and unblemished. That is the very character of God. But then he also told them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, you are, you are to be people who love me with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus added later on, he says, that includes loving your neighbor as yourself. That just as God was a God who is always free to give himself away in love, his desire is that we would learn to love others like he loves us. And so you put those two things together, and it's a picture of un, a lives of unblemished love, which is a very description of who Jesus was. In other words, who God envisions us to be is just like Jesus. But what's the problem that keeps us from that vision? 
what is broken. Well, God's word clearly lays out that the core problem is that the human heart has been infected with sin. And that has been the thing that has rippled out into our external world. As we follow the story of the Bible, we get into the second book, Exodus, and we immediately meet an enslaved people called the Israelites. Enslaved, oppressed under the tyrant Pharaoh in Egypt. And now, looking at that situation, a, a, someone, the secular point of view would say, well, what do they need to be their true selves? Well, they need to get out from under that external oppression. They need to liberate themselves. Well, we would say, yes, that's partly true. That's partly true. And God does just that, right? He frees them out of Egypt, and then he brings them as a free people, their own people. But now they're out in the desert. And even though they're physically free, they still grumble and complain and rebel against God. And if you're coming from a secular perspective, you say, oh, well, of course, it's the desert. Right? If I was in the desert, I'd be grumbling and complaining too. Like, like it's still an external situation. They need to get to a place of rich soil full of opportunity. All right. So God does that. Right? He leads them to the land that he promised to them. Rich soil, full of opportunity. But what happens there? That even when life is its best, under King David, King Solomon, they still as a people turn from God. They turn in on themselves. And they turn against one another. Eventually, after King Solomon died, his son, there was a civil, civil war split in the kingdom. We see that even when things were good, they were still not free. Over and over, we see in the story of the Bible that the issue isn't just external. Right? Like we should care about external things as Christians, absolutely. But we see that the core of the issue is internal. That their hearts were hardened to God's love and their character driven by selfishness and pride. So if you want to go back to our garden analogy... Like, it's not just the pollution and the smog and the weeds. It's also the soil itself is dry and lifeless. And God knew that for us to change so that we could love him, love others, and be like him, his vision, then he would need to cast off our hearts of sin and give us in turn a whole new life. After the Israelites just basically imploded on themselves. God sent them off to exile in Babylon. And while they're in exile, around like 597 B.C., he speaks to a prophet named Ezekiel. And he says, here's my solution, Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, speaking to you all, all the people of God. And you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That is false worship. So he is removing. But I would, then I will give you a new heart. Everybody say new heart. And I'll put a new spirit. Everybody say new spirit. In you. And I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Which is open to God. And I will put my spirit in you. And I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There we see God's solution. And then 600 years after God gave these words to Ezekiel, 
we see Jesus approaching John the Baptist in the passage we just read. And see, John is baptizing with water. But this water was just a precursor to Jesus. This baptism was an act that symbolizes the very same cleansing of sin that Ezekiel just talked about. That he wanted to see that God, they would become a people like God. That there would need to be an answer to the heart problem, the sin problem. Otherwise, like the just penalty for sin is death. But John had a problem. He could only wash the outside, but he looks and sees somebody who's about to wash the inside. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away, cast off the sin of the world. Because Jesus came and, become, and became that answer when he took all our sin on himself. He sacrificed his life and he took our sin to the grave so that we may be free from it. And for any of us who place our faith in him, our trust in him, not ourselves, Scripture promises that we are forgiven and that our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. That's the promise of God. That Jesus has cast off our dead hearts, unable to love him. But now we need a new heart. So what are we going to do about that? Well, Ezekiel says, God's not done. (laughs) Because Ezekiel said, we need our hearts removed so that God may place his spirit within us. And so John proclaimed right here, he says, I baptize with water, but Jesus, he baptizes, immerses, fills, recreates you with his Holy Spirit. And oftentimes when we hear this phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, some traditions in here, you hear that phrase and you immediately think tongues, prophecy, right? Like the gifts of the Spirit. But actually, the foundation of it finds its root right here in Ezekiel. Before it's anything else, it is the the bestowal of a new life. It is the very life of God within us that equips us and empowers us to become like him. It's the very power of God that changes us and transforms us, that fills us with his life and his spirit. And Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.17. He said, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. Freedom for what? To be who God intended us to be. To be like Jesus, right? And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. As we look to Jesus, as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we are, the, the Spirit is transforming us into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is the Spirit who shapes us into the image of Christ. God's very vision for our lives, that we would love like him and unblemished love like him. See, guys, if you get anything, get the Holy Spirit is not helping us become the best version of ourselves. He is transforming us to become like Jesus. All right? So if the Spirit does his work in us, like... Do I participate in that? Like, like what's, what's my role? If the Spirit is the one who's bringing about the change, do I just kind of hang out and let him do his, do his thing? Or like, do I actually have a role in becoming like Jesus? And this is a loaded question, guys. And I'm not going to have time to answer it as fully as I want. But let me just say this. 
trying to be as practical as I can. As we plant God's word in our minds and commit to live in community, the fruit of God's spirit will grow and be evident to those around us. Now, practically, when the Holy Spirit has come and filled somebody, like what would that life look like? How will we know? Because we know that if, if the Holy Spirit is, in fact, in, at work in somebody's life, like their life should look different, right? At le- maybe not right away, but at least in time, their life should be looked different. But what, what should it look like? Well, the Apostle Paul comes out and he says, well, if you want to know if the Spirit's at work in you, if you don't know the evidence of that, he says that then you know the fruit of God's Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You want to know what God's vision for your life is? That's it. That our lives would look just like that. And this week, I was looking at that list and I was thinking, Man, do these characterize me? (laughs) Uh, Love? Sometimes, I guess, right? Joy? Depends on the day. Um, Patience? Don't ask my kids, right? (laughs) Like, all of a sudden, I start to see a big gap between God's vision for my life and where I actually am, my day-to-day reality. So what do I do about that? Well, again, according to the, the secular story, and this, I've noticed how many times I've actually operated like this, my answer is like, well, I'll just try harder. I'll just uh, start to squeeze these things out and strive in my own human strength to get there. Or maybe I'll just chuck the standards out completely. Yeah, forget it all. Or maybe I'll blame others for why I am what I am. Or if all that fails, I'll just despair in futility. Right? <laughs> But what is it that Jesus says? That the life of the Spirit will mysteriously work in us as we plant His Word in our minds. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives a very simple but clarifying parable when He describes a farmer who goes out in his field and he scatters a bunch of seed. And then he goes inside. And Jesus says, whether he works or whether he sleeps, that seed starts to sprout up. And that sprout begins over time to grow marvelous fruit. Now, in that parable, what could the farmer control? Scattering seed. What could he not control? Whether it grew and bear fruit or not. And so we see, at least from that parable... What our role is in our own transformation is if the Spirit is within us, the soil of the Spirit is there, God says, I just want you to sow my word in your heart. You keep planting, keep exposing yourself to things of me, to my word, to my beauty, to my joy, to my love, to my peace. Like all of that. Expose yourself to that. And you're planting that within my Spirit. He will bring about the growth in His time. Paul confirms the same in Galatians 6.8. He says, whoever sows or plants to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. But if we're consistently planting things in our hearts and our minds that are not of God, it's going to hinder our growth. We're going to end up very frustrated. 
But if I trust in Jesus, his spirit was within me, that means he fills me and that he is forming me to become the masterpiece that God has designed me to be. And I can't control how fast I grow, as frustrating as that is. But I can control what I sow. So what am I planting within my heart and mind? His word, his love, or a whole lot of CNN and Fox News? That's cool. <laughs> Are we planting his beauty and his joy? Or a whole lot of things that really just don't have much eternal significance? What are we planting? But last... God's Spirit shapes us best in the context of committed community. i got to make this plain because we live in such a highly individualistic society, as we explained earlier, that views relationships as expendable. And once they get tough, once I don't like you anymore, once you start annoying me, I'm out. Once I start getting nervous or anxious or afraid that you might reject me, I'm out. And we, we find ourselves moving between groups consistently. But, but, but look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. How are we going to learn love? How are we going to learn patience if we're always half committed or not committed at all to the relationships around us? We can, like, the committed part is huge. Because committed means I'm willing to stick it out even when someone offends me, annoys me, and makes me angry. And those times are actually opportunities for us to ask the Spirit, please show me right now how to respond like Jesus. You know, not, like, few things have grown me in my life as much as parenting. Why? Because I'm committed to those kids. I'm not leaving those kids. But that means that I'm going to figure out how to love them at 4 a.m. and when we're playing fun games, Right? But when I'm, it's at 4 a.m. and I'm not looking like Jesus in every sense of the word, right? That becomes the time where I get, learn to get on my knees and like, Spirit of God, please show me how to respond like Jesus right now. Because I'm not feeling him right now. Like, <laughs> it is not my time. But if we just quit on our friends, on our church, on our small group, if we quit on these relationships, when things get hard or we get afraid, we may miss the ways that the Spirit wants to form us and shape us to be like Jesus. Now granted, if a relationship is destructive or abusive, at that point it has become deformative. Right? And like the Spirit leads us out of those. But let's make, like, get counsel in those situations. Like share somebody about that. Like, like find somebody who's safe. To talk to if that's you so that you can discern what's going on there. But most of the time, the Spirit of God is shaping us in, within the context of committed community. Again, the Holy Spirit is not helping us to become a better version of ourselves. He is transforming us to become like Jesus. And the reason why I felt the need to share all of this today is because I see that it's not just out there, right? It, like, it's in here too. So many times I've tried to trust in myself to bring about growth and change. 
how many times I've tried to white knuckle it and strive in my own human strength and there's anything but joy coming out of my life because of it. But as we learn to be open to the Holy Spirit and we learn to go to him when we struggle and we learn to say, show me yet again what it means to be like Jesus, that's when we grow and change. And I know in a, in a sermon series on the Holy Spirit, a lot of people think, oh man, when is he going to get to the fun stuff? <laughs> right? Tongues, prophecy, healing, like, like, like that's going to be, oh, that, I'll really lean in on those Sundays. But listen, none of that matters if we don't first get this. It is useless. Paul himself said, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith that I can move mountains, but I have not love, I have not been shaped like Jesus, I am nothing. And there's so much more that I could say today on spiritual formation and how that happens. But there's also so much mystery into how he ultimately shapes us and grows us. I have a ton of questions still. And many of us, like me, may wish that God would speed up the process on us. Or maybe some of us wish he would slow it down because it hurts. But either way, we can trust that when we place our faith in him, he is wise. He is good. He is full of mercy and grace. And unlike our desires, he actually knows where he's going. <laughs> he already knows where he's leading us, and it's to himself. To know him. To become like him. In an abiding relationship with his spirit. That is where we are going and so is the Spirit of God free to work in our hearts, in our lives? God's not looking for people who got it all figured out. He's just looking for open hearts. He's looking for people who are willing to just set their eyes on Jesus and keep sowing the seed of his word in their hearts and in their minds. And all of those of us like me who have those voices in our heads that often feel like, oh, you should be like this. You should be like this. You're not there yet. And consistently condemning us for the gap between us. We go to our God and we say, no, 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 no. You, grace covers that. And I come to you, receive your grace again because only his grace will lead us to a deeper joy. And we trust him yet again. So are we consistently, daily, sowing who our God is, his word, into us? And if we're not committed to a community of folks who are growing together in Christ, please get involved in one. And actually sink in. Because it is through these things that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the growth within us. So now will you stand with me? We're going to sing a final song. And this song is really a prayer in response to what we just read. But as we sing this song, I encourage you, instead of trying to figure it all out, just be present. Just be present and say, Holy Spirit, if you want to show me something, go ahead. But I'm yours and I trust you. So, Lord God, I pray that in this moment that your spirit would be so real to everybody here. God, that no matter where we think we should be, no matter how far back we fall, we know that you're the God who's ultimately leading us. 
and you never lead us at a pace quicker than we can go. You are always faithful, and you know us better than we know ourselves. You made us, and you're the one who also died for us to save us. And so we trust you to change us, to become like you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Amen.